Take your Bibles with me this evening, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. A son, not a servant. Last time we were together, we began our study proper by laying an important foundation that God has spoken. He has made himself known, and he wants us to know him. We spoke a little bit about that this morning as we considered the grandeur and the greatness of our God and then that he saw fit to take on the frailty of human flesh in order that we might be saved. God has spoken. And our conclusion in that week was if God has gone out of his way to speak, then the least we can do is go out of our way to listen. In many ways, however, that message was a bit of an aside, drawing not upon the contrast which is being painted in verses 1 and 2 between the prophet of God and the Son of God, and rather focusing strictly upon this foundational principle that uh, whether through the prophet or through the Son, God has spoken, something that the writer of Hebrews takes for granted, that God has spoken. And so we establish that principle together. This week we focus truly on the context at hand. The Gospels opened into an Old Testament biblical economy. Within the Old Testament biblical economy, God saw fit to speak through prophets. And we see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, as well as uh, really John as well. Um, this is in an Old Testament economy. We are still seeing uh, God speaking through the prophet who is John, and then we see a transition through the finished work of Jesus Christ into the new covenant, right? Into the actual New Testament or the new covenant in his blood. What we just spoke about in our time around the Lord's table this evening. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, right? Which is shed for you. That is the New Testament, and that is what is accounting for. But in those early days, those early days within the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are still operating in an old covenant economy. Now, that biblical economy being, being uh, God using prophets to speak unto his people. And in Malachi, there was a promise given, a promise which were the final words of divine and inspired revelation for hundreds of years until the prophet John. And those words are found in verses 5 and 6 of Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. God promised that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he would send Elijah the prophet, a prototypical prophet figure who would speak the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, excuse me, and direct the hearts of Israel unto reconciliation. Now this prophecy was fulfilled, our Lord tells us, in the person of John the Baptist and realized through his baptism of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, it may have been only a shadow. We often see dual fulfillments. It's not to say that there will not be another Elijah before the second advent of the Lord. It's entirely possible that we will see that. But we do see Jesus testify to the fact that this is Elijah. He said, if you will receive it, this is Elijah. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see a very unique and important contrast, the same unique and important contrast that Hebrews is going to introduce to us this evening. So we read in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man who is preferred before me. So he's coming after me, but he's greater than me, right? For he was before me, because though he's coming after me, he existed before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now look at verse 34. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist acknowledged that he existed to pave the way for one that was greater than himself, right? One that was preferred before him because he was before him. 
And this one was Jesus, who John declared to be the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John bearing witness to the Spirit of God descending from heaven like a dove and abiding on Jesus, the very thing that he who had sent him to baptize, that would be the Father, said, when you see the one upon whom the Holy, Holy Spirit descends, this is he of whom I spoke. He which comes after you will be preferred. And he said in verse 34, I saw him, and I saw the Spirit descend upon him, and I can bear record that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist, the prototypical Elijah, the avatar for, for the entirety of the ministry of the prophets, says, this one is greater than I. The Son of God is greater, is preferred before the prophet of God. And John testifies to this. And it is this distinction that Paul is emphasizing in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 1. And as we have seen already, it will be a major focus of the entire book of Hebrews. The superiority of the Son to the Old Testament Mosaic system, to its law, to its priesthood, to its sacrifices. That's what we're going to be studying now for many weeks. So we read this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. We spake last time about the meaning of these terms, sundry times and diverse manners, as we understood the simple reality that God desires man to know him, desires to be known unto man. But notice the strong and definitive contrast that's painted here. This God, who in the past spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And we've already seen from the ministry of John the Baptist going all the way back to John chapter 1 that this intrinsically means that God has spoken through something superior than the prophets. John declared it, right? He that is after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And so John is, it told us this in John 1, right? So, so we're not learning anything new here. And yet it's established very firmly. Many things to unpack here. Let's work through them together. First, we immediately see the Hebrew character of this message. Throughout both Old and New Testaments, Jewish culture has always been deeply rooted in their history and in the lives of what is called throughout the prophets and the Gospels, the Fathers. The major and minor prophets would often speak to the people of their days um, of sin and of, of, of the sin of their day, and, he, and the prophet would compare and contrast it with the sin and obedience of their fathers. Jesus regularly spoke to the nation about the actions and decisions of their fathers, referencing the previous generations in Israel. In the book of Acts, the deacons and the apostles, when they would preach specifically to the Jewish people, not when they would preach to the Gentiles, not Paul when he's at, at Mars Hill, but when he would speak to the Jews, he would speak regularly and appeal to them about the hard hearts of the fathers. And so we see a very Hebrew context here. And we recognize early on, though the book is also called the book of Hebrews, uh, that, that we are writing in a very Hebrew context right from the outset. We'll see this same contest, uh, context, excuse me, contrast painted throughout the book. The second thing I want to highlight as we, as we stay here for a moment is a concept that we spoke about in our morning series in 2 Timothy not too long ago. The phrase, in these last days. We traced in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the history of this phrase, last days, if you recall. As it's written in the Old Testament, the latter days. And we found as we traced it from the Old Testament teaching through its New Testament application that the last days speaks of the final piece of God's program. And the key to us knowing when it would begin uh, was, was found in a combination of the prophecies of Joel chapter 2 and the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2. And when those were put together, where Joel chapter 2 gives us the prophecy and then Peter, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets that prophecy into the events of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we found through this on that day, 
where the Holy Spirit of God fell upon the 70 in the upper room, that that was what Peter said initiated the Joel chapter 2 prophecy of the last days. And then as we walk through any number of Old Testament prophetic um, utterances in regard to the last days, we traced the events that we would call uh, the last days all the way through till at least the advent or the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And to that end, we set a framework in place where we recognize the last days to have begun at Pentecost and to continue at least through the beginning of the millennial kingdom proper, making us within a part of what the Bible calls the last days. And of course, this being acknowledged in the statement here, these last days. And so to the point of the text, we see a contrast between the prophets of times past, spoken in times past unto the fathers, and now the Son speaking in times present in these last days. What we would also draw from this is that throughout the last days, as it's presented here, the Son is the definitive communication of God to man. And we would expect it to remain so. The prophets were servants of the living God. Men, as James describes in James 5.17 of Elijah, who were subject to like passions as we are. These prophets, they were fallible men. They were sinful men. They made mistakes. They got proud. They got selfish. They got frustrated. We see this with Elijah, right? <laughs> we see this with Moses. We see this in a number of the prophets. These were fallible men. They, 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 with passions like as we, right? And yet God was able, through the measure of obedience and submission which those fallible men had, to use them to preach to kings and to nations and peoples throughout the known world. Think of Jonah, one of the most successful prophets in the Old Testament, who was also the most reluctant prophet, right? Very fallible men. But then we ask a question. What if God could do one better? What if God did not just give men the words to say to articulate the will of the Father, fallible men with all of their flaws? What if God sent a direct representative of himself? Why a direct representative, Pastor? Why not just show himself? Why not just show up? Well, he did. But let's talk about why the representative had to be the way it was. The Bible reveals, particularly in the Old Testament, and history and experience confirm that man has been created with certain limitations, not just upon his body, but also upon his mind and upon his spirit. There's only so much that the human mind can comprehend, right? And it is physically and spiritually impossible for our brains and our spirits to operate outside of the context within which we were created. The human brain can understand the concept of things not having a beginning or an ending, but we have absolutely no way to properly relate ourselves to the idea of no beginning and no ending. Try to relate yourself to the concept. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. Try to contemplate God having no beginning and no ending, a God that always was. It, it, you can't do it. You can, you can understand it in theory, but you can't actually wrap your mind around the concept. Everything has a beginning and an ending. Everything. <laughs> we have absolutely no frame of reference to understand that. And this is not the only part of God that is that way. When Moses asked God to show me thy glory, Moses asked, show me thy glory. God's response in Exodus 33, verse 20 was this. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. The human mind was not made with the capacity to comprehend God. So then here's an interesting thing. If God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us, and God wants you to know him, to, to know everything about him. How does an invisible, almighty invisible, God only wise, 
How does the incomprehensible God make himself known to mortal man? If God wanted to do better than that of the prophets, that better than, than, than just the prophets telling man what God says and thinks, fallible men who do signs and wonders and speak the word of God to other fallible men, how would God go about doing it? And this is the purpose of the Son. Whereas man has no capacity, materially or spiritually, to enter into God's context, God instead entered into our context. God became man. God came into the world, bound himself to the laws and limitations of this world in order that he could manifest himself in a way that we could understand so that we could know him in a way that we never otherwise would be able to. God literally made himself a physical metaphor in the person, in, in, in a human form, in order for us to comprehend him on a level that we could not otherwise. We already did that. It's a very similar thing to what we did this evening in the Lord's table, is it not? That what we see here is that, we, that, that God established a physical metaphor to help us comprehend something that is spiritual in nature. That the idea of consuming the body and the blood of Jesus Christ the idea of taking part in Christ, the idea of Christ literally entering into my being and me physically consuming him in that manner. Now, it's just a metaphor, right? It's just a symbol. It's a, it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. It's an anticipation. It's those things that we spoke of in our time uh, together this evening. And yet it is there in order to help a fallible human man have a tangible grasp on something that is absolutely intangible. That is Jesus. Jesus is a tangible grasp of that which is absolutely incomprehensible to man otherwise. So that we can know him in a way that we could never otherwise know him. Now look down at your Bible and notice very carefully that the word his in our King James Bible is in italics. Verse 2, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, italicized his. That italics in our King James Bibles is a place where the, the translators, the King James translators, added a word that was not found in the Greek manuscript that they were translating out of. So in order that we would know where they added an interpretive gloss for the sake of some measure of understanding, they put the word in italics. That is being transparent so that we can know what we're dealing with here. Quite literally translated, the phrase would be, hath in these last days spoken unto us by son, or in that it would be the indefinite we would say, hath in these last days spoken unto us by a son. And this is significant. We see the same thing in John's introduction to Jesus in the Gospel of John. We've already referenced the Gospel of John. That the writer first focuses upon the concept simply of a son or the son of God. And as it relates to a contrast, the, the, the purpose of, of Paul's writing here is not to tell us yet about who the Son is, but rather simply to introduce this concept of the prophets, the servants of God versus a son, a servant versus a son. That's the contrast here that is being painted, the difference between a servant and a son. So John would do this in John chapter 1. Speaking of the Son of God existing as the fullest expression of the invisible God to mortal man through entering into his context as a man, and then later he introduces the identity of this Son. And that's fine because of this immediate point, which is not who this Son is, but rather the character of this Son in contrast to the servants. So we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very expression of God, the essence of His personhood and character, that is who this Word is, fitted into the bounds and the context of the created world, 
the Word is God. But we don't yet know that this Word is Jesus, right? We'll get there. But at this point, John simply wants us to know that the Logos, the Word, is God. He was with God and he was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And as we continue in Hebrews 1, Paul is going to beautifully express these two concepts in much the same way John does if we were to continue to read in John chapter 1. First, the character of God's Son as the Word of God made flesh. And then second, and more directly to the point of Paul's writing, the superiority of the personal expression of God through a Son to anything that God could possibly express through simply a servant. And so we come back to verse 2. Following the contrast, Paul begins a concise list of the virtues of the Son above the virtues of the prophet. First, in that he was appointed heir of all things. This being through his submission to the Father, as we know from our study in Philippians chapter 2, before we got into Hebrews. He is heir of all things because he submitted himself to the Father. Next, in that he is also the ever-existent creator of the world. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, The word of God was made flesh. Oh, excuse me. That's John 1.14. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 calls the Son the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. God's Son was present at creation and is in fact creator God himself. And so is the creator of the world by the word of his power and heir of all things by his authority. And this leads us into a mirrored expression of these same thoughts in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I just told you that this was a mirrored expression. Uh, what we call this in Hebrew poetry is a chiastic structure. For those of you that have heard my teaching on Hebrew poetry on Tuesday nights, you know that this structure is a poetic way of organizing thoughts and expressions commonly found in the Hebrew tongue. And generally speaking, we regard this structure as a sort of, if, if we can call it this, a mental funnel to draw our attention to the things that are in the center of that funnel. So we find here between verses 2 and 3 what I believe is a chiastic structure. So Christ is appointed heir of all things, we see in verse 2. And this is paralleled with the final phrase in verse 3. When he hath purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see the parallel idea there? He's appointed heir of all things, and by purging our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because he is the heir, he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. Then in the next phrase in verse 2, it says, by whom he made the world. And we see this paralleled with the next phrase up in verse 3 from, from the final phrase. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is creator and sustainer. Both of them speaking to that creative work that Jesus is creator and sustainer. And then finally, all of this funnels our thoughts into the center two phrases being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That the Son is the image of God to man. Now, as I just mentioned, take note of this. The identity of the Son is not yet mentioned. And he will not be mentioned, in fact, until chapter 2. We have said that, I think, every week. But only one man has by himself purged our sins. So we know exactly who's being spoken of here. Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't mention him for a reason. Because at this point, Paul's focus is not on the Son's identity, but only upon the superiority of God's Son as the expression of man to the servants. And we see that in this mental funnel, that the very center of this chiastic structure is that Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's the point. That the prophets and the system put in place by them 
was inferior to that which is now through the sun. So Baal gives us three effective reasons in that chiastic structure why the sun, a sun, is greater than a servant. First, in the, the, the first and that last line, that the sun is accomplished as the redeemer and as the heir. In his redemptive and authoritative accomplishments, the son is greater than the prophets. Second, in his creative and sustaining accomplishments, the son is greater than the prophets. And then all directing us toward the, the, the climax or the center of this argument, that the son is superior to the servant because the son is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. The very image of God revealed to man in a way that mankind can know and understand. A direct metaphor of God to man. Now, of course, there's much that we could unpack there. We could spend weeks contemplating the character of the son as redeemer, as heir, as creator, and as sustainer. But we aren't going to do that. We're going to maintain a measure of focus. We're not going to, to, to get quite off focus that much. Maybe at some point I'll come back to that four-week series on Christ as, as uh, Redeemer and Inheritor and Creator and Sustainer. But the point that Paul is calling us to see as we try to maintain that focus this evening is this. That whereas God has at times past made himself well known through fallible servants, now God has in these last days made himself fully known through a son. And in that God has chosen his son to do this great work because only his son could do this great work. His son is by right superior in every way to everything that has come before. And we see this expressed in verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now in that the Son is made here, he says being made so much better than the angels, this is not saying that the Son of God was created. It's not saying that Jesus is a created being. In that the Son is the creator, it follows that he is not a part of the creation, Right? He enters into this creation as Jesus, but prior to that point, the Son existed outside of the system he created. Much to the contrary, and John even mentioned this, right? He who has come before me, is, or he who has come after me is preferred before me because he was before me, right? John saying, he existed before me. Jesus said the same thing. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he said to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, what do you mean? Have you met Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am saying that he pre-existed Abraham, that he is the eternal ever-existent one. He is he who saw Moses on the, on the, at the burning bush and said, I am that I am. And of course, they wanted to stone him for that. So Jesus is outside of this creation. He is the ever-existing one. Much to the contrary then, the idea that the Son was made better than the angels hearkens not to the Son being created in an existence idea, but rather to the Son's inheritance. And that's what the verse plainly says here. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. It is the name. It is the title. It is the reality of him being the Son of God. We're going to talk more about that next week. That is what Jesus was made into. He is called the only begotten Son of God because He was begotten. Not in that He was created in a physical way. Not that He is a created being, but that He was begotten into the title of being the Son of God. That will, that will encompass our entire sermon the next time we're in Hebrews. Um, and you'll, you'll understand why when we get there. So the son's inheritance, the son being heir of all things, if we remember our chiastic structure, directly corresponds to the reality that he himself purged our sins. And so through this great work on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus was made better than the angels. Not that Jesus was created. Jesus was made better than the angels through redemption, through obedience. Jesus earned his inheritance by submitting himself to the redemptive work of the Father. 
and so became the begotten Son of God. And in doing so, not only has Jesus obtained a more excellent name than they, the prophets, but also in this, we'll see starting next week, he has obtained a more excellent name than the angels. And that'll start next week and continue in the week to come. And that's going to transition us into that next facet of Paul's argument about the son's superiority to the law through the son's superiority to the angels. But we will see as we transition to chapter 2 that take place. For tonight, however, I'd like us to settle in on the nature of this contrast between the son and the servant. This is where we're going to park. Last week's application, or last time we were together, was this. If God has gone out of his way to speak, let us go out of our way to listen. But let's dig a bit deeper into this. All throughout the world, all throughout history, there have been prophets, men of wisdom, men of insight, men who seem to have some connection to something beyond the physical, men that have some sort of spiritual something. But what's so unique about Christianity is that we aren't followers of God's prophet. We are followers of God's son. We have something so much greater than the prophets. And this goes so far beyond just proving that, the, that, that, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God to man in contrast to the Old Testament prophets. We could speak to Allah. We could speak to Muhammad, right? We could speak to the Buddha. We could speak to the Dalai Lama. We could speak to ancestors. We could speak to all of the other prophets. We could speak to the prophets of the Seventh-day Adventists. We could speak to the prophets of the Mormons, the Ellen G. Whites, the Joseph Smiths. All of these are prophets. But why would prophets need to come if God has already spoken through a son? How strange is that? That God has spoken through a son, and then all of a sudden, there are more prophets. Why would we give any prophet credence when God has already spoken through his son? Why would any servant matter, self-proclaimed servant? Why would any servant even exist if God has already spoken through the son? A servant does not anymore exist. Now, we are servants of God, but you get what I'm saying. Why would the prophets need to persist if God has already one-upped them in his son? And so we see we have something much greater than a prophet. The prophets have been made... Now, don't, don't, don't misinterpret this next statement. The Old Testament is inspired by God and is profitable. The Old Testament is not inferior to the New Testament in any way. The Old Testament and the New Testament are in 100% agreement. Jesus came to be baptized by John the, John the Baptist to show his agreement with John's message, right? That's why he did it. Jesus was baptized by John. John and Jesus were not conflicting, contradicting, or competing. But everything that the prophets revealed about God was manifest, magnified, and added to by the Son. The Son is the epitome of God's revelation to man. We'll talk more about that in a moment. In Christ, we have not just a clear expression of God to man, but we have the express image of God's person given unto us, made known unto us, revealed unto us. We sing a hymn. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The next phrase. What more can he say than to you he has said? This confidence that God has not just spoken, that's what we talked about last time, but that God has spoken in his fullness is not simply a confidence in a tradition that states that the Bible canon is complete, that God has given us everything we need in the canon. This confidence is that once we have been given the record of the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ recorded through the life of Christ and his apostles, there's nothing more for God to reveal. That's the idea. There's nothing left for God to tell us. God has given us everything. Everything. He has shown himself in full. He has given us the express image of his person. 
He's told us everything. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't mysteries. He's told us everything that there is to know, that he wants us to know, that we need to know. There's nothing more to tell. Jesus is the express image of God to man. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the logos, right? The word of God, the expression of God to mankind. He is the spoken word of God. Now, just before our application, we know this message is important to all men, but take a moment to remember our context. Consider just how important this message would be in a Jewish context. Because this is Paul's argument, right? That the Son sent to the world, uh, into the world is greater than the prophets sent to the fathers, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And Jesus made this very distinction an important one as he reached out to the nation of Israel in his day. Jesus taught a parable in Mark 12, and he said this in verses 1 through 6. He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, that would be the husbandmen caught the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last, last, unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. Jesus describes a man who owns a vineyard and places it into the hands of stewards. And then he goes into a far country. And in his season of harvest, the man sends his servant to the husbandmen, to the stewards, to receive of the fruit of the vineyard. And the stewards refuse to give it to him because the stewards have decided they want the vineyard. And so they beat him and they send him away. So he sends another and they wound him and they shame him and they send him away. And he sends another servant and they kill him and he sends more servants and they beat some and they kill some. And he finally reasons with him in himself and he says they must simply, perhaps it is, perhaps it is that it's simply the fact that the servant doesn't have enough authority to speak on my behalf, that these, that these stewards, these husbandmen, think that these servants are not actually speaking of me. They're not actually representing me. So I'm going to send my well-beloved son, the one who is my heir, my only son, the one who carries all of my authority. There's no way that they can deny that this man has all of my authority, that he represents me entirely. He is my only and well-beloved son and I will send him last. Surely, the Father says, they will reverence my Son. Surely, they will respect his authority. Verses 7 and 8. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. So instead of the husbandman seeing in this final revelation of the, of the master, in the master's son, what they saw is an opportunity to overthrow the master, to take the master's inheritance for themselves, to remove the heir and claim it for themselves. So they kill him and they cast him out of the vineyard taking him outside the city and hanging him on a tree, right? Now, this is a parable, which means it bears a singular point. You see the parallels, right? The vineyard owner is God. The stewards are the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the, 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 the teachers in Israel. The servants are of the owners. They're the prophets who have gone before. The son is the son of God. And the prophets were beaten and maimed and killed for the testimony of the Father. 
And when the fullness of time had come, God chose last to send his son, the highest authoritative representation of himself that he could, to, to make himself fully accessible to man as a living metaphor of himself in the express image of his person, in the, in, in, in the person of, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. His only well-beloved Son. But none of that's the point of the parable. This is only the structure of the parable. The point of the parable is in verses 9 through 11. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and he will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So God made a final grand overture of himself to Israel, and when Israel refused it, then he says, I will let my vineyard out to others, that being the transition between Israel and the church. And to this age, we thus have been grafted into the olive tree of the purpose of God to represent God to the world until the time where God will finish his plan with Israel. But the point was, to those who would refuse to hear the Son, the consequences are great. Now, this was a parable that was given to the nation of Israel in a Jewish context. But what is Paul doing in Hebrews chapter 1? He is transitioning this same idea to the church that in these last days, not just unto Israel, but unto the church, God has spoken through His Son. God has given us everything now that He wants to tell us through the express image of His person in the person of Christ. And this brings us to our application this evening. Do you want to know God? Get to know Jesus. Very simple. Say, duh, Pastor. I didn't need 45 minutes for you to tell me that. I know. But let's think about this a little bit. Joel and I were having a good conversation just before our time here, and we were talking about the nature of meditating upon the Word of God. It's all well and good to get lots of information in a given day, and you get a lot of information on any given Sunday here. Um, but it's only as good as the degree to which you chew on it, Right? So I've given you a lot of information to bring about a simple point. In its simplicity, that just gives you a little more time to chew on it, okay? Get to know God by getting to know his son, getting to know his words, getting to know his works, getting to know his teachings through his apostles. Learn what Jesus loved and love it too. Learn what Jesus rejected, hated, and hate it too. Learn how Jesus responded and learn to respond that way. Learn the instructions given to Christ's church through the apostles and found your life upon them. We found our church upon them. There were seminal moments in the life of Jesus Christ when the Father would testify of his Son. One of those points is what we call the transfiguration, right? When Jesus appeared on the mount, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and his raiment shone in his exceeding brightness of glory. And following this amazing experience, the Bible says a cloud overshadowed the disciples, and a voice came out of that cloud which said, This is my beloved Son. Establishing the reality that this is not just a servant, this is a son who they have here. And then the next words, important words, Hear him. And it's very simple, isn't it? Hear him. But it wasn't simple for the disciples, was it? After that moment, after that transfiguration, a lot of things would transpire. A lot of them were tra transpired the way they did because the disciples weren't hearing very well. I can stand up tonight and I can say, hear him. What I hope became manifest in our time together is as we talked last time we were together about the fact that God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us, we recognize this evening that God has revealed himself in a very special way. 
How far out of his way has God gone to reveal himself? He actually entered into our contexts to reveal himself in a way that we could comprehend. We could not come to him, so he came to us. That's how much God wants you to know him. And then we don't do anything with it. Right? And this call to hear him is not without a measure of urgency. We'll learn this later in the book of Hebrews. There isn't another step in the line of revelation. You and I, in the word of God, through the illumination of the spirit of God, have been given the fullness of God in Christ. But if only God would tell me a little more, pastor. If only God would tell me a little bit more that would get me over the hump that I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now. Look, there isn't any more to tell. There isn't. If only God would give me a sign, if you don't believe the scriptures, what did Jesus say? If, God, if they do not believe Abraham and the prophets, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead, Luke 15. In these last days, God has spoken through his son. He has spoken. He has given us the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Hear him. Believer, you have the spirit of God indwelling you. You have the illuminating power of the Spirit of God in you. You have him as your teacher. He is not only the author, but he's the finisher of your faith. He is the one that has been given to you in order. What did Jesus say? That the Comforter will come and he will teach you. He will remind you of all the things that I have told you. Not only do you have the words of Jesus Christ and the express image of his person relayed in his word, but you have the Rosetta Stone. You have the decoder ring. You have the Spirit of God to take the, the, the spiritual elements of Christ's existence and translate them into you in a manner that you can understand. God has given you everything necessary to understand him in his word, through his son, by his spirit. He has not left us comfortless. He has left his peace with us. Are you listening? What an interesting it would be, an interesting thing it would be. You can only imagine the archaeologists, they're digging, and they find the Rosetta Stone. They say, wow, this tells us, this translates from hieroglyphics to a language that we already understand. Huh. Maybe we'll get to it. And they go put it in a museum somewhere, and they, well, we'll get around to that one of these days, figuring out what all these Egyptians said. Well, we'll take it a line at a time. Maybe next year we'll read another. Maybe next year we'll figure out another line. How silly would that be? People would stand around saying, no, 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 no. You have everything necessary to understand this language. Figure it out. What, what knowledge did they have? What was their culture like? Let's, let's unlock. We got the key. We've, there's the lock. Here's the key. Let's put them together. You have the key, Christian. How interested are you in unlocking that door? Hear him, Christian. Hear him while you can. Hear him while there's time to hear. And this theme will resound time and again in the book of Hebrews. Faith is the call. Faith in the Son of the living God. Faith in his creative work. Faith in his redemptive work. Faith in his capacity to help us to overcome the world. Faith in his promises. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. You want to know God, you can. You don't have to climb to the highest hill or go down to the deepest valley. You don't have to uh, study and learn for years and years and years to be able to become a 33rd degree Christian in order to find enlightenment. His word is nigh unto us in our ears, in our hearts. What are we doing with it? Do you hear him? Do you, out, do you want to know God? He's accessible. What's holding us back? What's stopping us? What, what, what hinders us? Is it pride? Ignorance is bliss, they say. The more I know, the more I'm accountable for. Have you ever learned something? Realize that now you have an accountability and say, ah, maybe I wish I wouldn't have learned that. Now I'm accountable for it. My children do this, right? They can stay away from mom and dad when mom has that gleam in her eye that says we're going to do work today. 
the children suddenly disappear. See, because if they can't hear mom, then maybe, just maybe, there won't be any accountability to the work. Is it because you don't want to hear the father that you're hiding? Are you, are you hiding because you don't want to hear the father? What if? What if, what if God told you to give that up? What if God told you to go there? What if God told you to talk to that person? What if God told you to give of that thing? What if God asked for something? Maybe I'll just hide. God's got that gleam in his eye. It says there's, it's a day to work. Work for the night is coming. Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it just apathy? You know, God, I'll get around to you tomorrow. There's always another day. There's always another time. Until a man looks back and he realizes the waste and the loss. And so Jesus would say in that parable, thou fool, right? This day your life will be asked of thee. We've been given this revelation. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. You've accepted him for most of us here, Young children, perhaps, accepting, many of them accepting. But if you've received him, as the scriptures say, as ye have received him, so walk ye in him. So let's get to know Jesus. Very simple truth that we can carry with us this week. Get to know him a little bit better. A little bit better this week, then a little bit better next week. It's all been laid out for us. It's all been revealed for us. If we're willing to listen, let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.